From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today on The Public Morality, we speak with Reverend Terrence Hawkins about the Black Lives Matter movement. After that, Bob Hall of Democracy North Carolina joins us to discuss the recent decision handed down by Judge Thomas Schroeder upholding the election law passed by the North Carolina legislature. That's next on The Public Morality. One of the news items that dominated 2015 was the Black Lives Matter movement. What began as a social media protest in the wake of several killings of African Americans at the hands of law enforcement morphed into a national effort with local chapters. Though it's a term that many are familiar with, fewer understand what the movement is about, and perhaps more importantly, what it is not about. Joining me to discuss Black Lives Matter is Reverend Terrence Hawkins. Reverend Hawkins has been involved in the Black Lives Matter movement at the local level as well as nationally. Let's begin with just providing a brief overview by you describing the Black Lives Matter movement. Talk about what it is and perhaps more important, also give some discussion about what it's not. Sure. So the Black Lives Matter movement, as I see it, is basically three things. Um, One in it is a social media hashtag um, that was used um, in response to the acquittal of George Zimmerman in July 2013. And it was basically kind of a rallying cry, an affirmation of black lives and a call for liberation. And um, as it sort of picked up momentum, um, as more and more um, situations of police brutality hit national headlines, it, it sort of turned into a, mo- a movement. And in that movement, ground zero of the movement could probably be said to be um, Ferguson, uh, Missouri, when Mike Brown was killed um, by Officer Darren Wilson. Um, and that just began to kind of rally folks across the nation in different regions, um, different communities, different organizations that all kind of use this calling card uh, to describe what they're about. They're not always in a agreement on their strategies for justice, but they do agree that Black Lives Matter. And uh, then the last portion of it, it is an organization. So there's a chapter that's been formed um, and the chapters around the nation um, with some guiding principles that folks rally around kind of organizationally. So in in that context, that seems to be similar to the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s in that not the issues are the same, but the civil rights movement was not a systematic movement. It was a collection of movements that moved from Montgomery to Birmingham, you know, the Selma, so on and so forth, that started at sort of these local levels. So in that context, is it similar in that vein? I would say absolutely. So you have um, tragic moments that happen in different communities, and they kind of galvanize organizers um, and folks that protest and begin to do activism locally. And then through social media, they kind of connect themselves around this calling card, if you will, of Black Lives Matter. And and that social media was started by whom? Um, So three founders, um, Alicia Garza, um, a young lady named uh, Patricia Cullors, Mm -hmm. and uh, the other person is Opal Tomiti. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were the co-creators of the hashtag. And again, like I mentioned earlier, as things started picking up momentum, they decided to organizationalize um, the hashtag and kind of, you know, put some more meat into uh, what they were trying to do. Now, how do you respond to the, the reflexive response to Black Lives Matter being all lives matter? 
Well, yeah, first I would affirm and say, yes, absolutely, all lives matter. Um, all people are made in God's image, so they have worth, value, and dignity. Um, but prophetically speaking, we can't just stay in the universal. We can't just uh, avoid particularity. Um, and so we're trying to make a point that in America, inside the American empire, for centuries, black lives have not mattered. Um, and that's been seen in the criminal justice system. It's been seen in education. It's been seen across the board inside of this empire and so it's an assertion no wait a minute in spite of the way that the american empire has treated this group of people people our lives do matter and we should be organizing to make that a reality um, institutionally structurally and in every way possible when you hear uh like someone says black lives matter and you hear in response well all lives matter are you offended by that not necessarily so it depends on the heart behind that response. There are some folks who clearly do not value black lives, and so they have an invested interest in saying all lives matter. Um, so even when you look back at the Declaration of Independence, you, you have on paper that all men are created equal, but clearly that was only white male landowners. And so for those that are disingenuous, I do have an, uh, I am slightly offended by that. But other folks are, are genuinely trying to say, well, we can't leave anyone out. And so I think what the movement has been trying to do is say, no, we're not trying to leave anyone out. We're trying to focus on this specific issue, just like someone may focus specifically on breast cancer. And no one comes in and says, well, what about sickle cell anemia? Um, that matters. Of course it matters. But we have a, a specific focus here. What do you say to, to charges that the Black Lives Matter movement is essentially a, 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 a leaderless movement. And I, I'll, but go ahead, I'll let you respond. I'll, I'll come back. I'll go ahead. Sure. So that, that is a critique that is uh, said frequently. I would respond to it by saying that it is actually a leaderful movement. Um, it's not like the civil rights movement where you have kind of this male messianic figure like a Martin Luther King who is the face of the movement. It's a leaderful movement where you have folks like um, the founders that I mentioned, Philip Agnew, uh, Reverend Michael McBride, uh, Tracy Blackman, people across the nation who are powerful voices doing amazing work on the ground are leading this charge. And so I, I would say it's a leaderful uh, movement, not a leaderless movement. I want to stay with that for just a moment because one of my, my observations to that has been not so much that you need an individual uh, to, to be the face of the movement, but you do need, in my view, um, a coherent message. So, right. so, for example, when violence crops up in, say, Ferguson, mm -hmm. um, with a, with a, uh, a cohesive, cohesive message, as in, say, say, Martin Luther King, 1968, right. when violence broke out in Memphis, there was that cohesive message that said, okay, that is not part of our movement, right. and you can delineate. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, when people are watching on television, that's Black Lives Matter turning over cars and burning. Right, right. And so one thing I would say to that is that even though they had a coherent message uh -huh. in the 60s, uh, late 50s, um, oftentimes when there were riots, King and others were scapegoated as the cause for that. And so I think that dynamic will always be there. But I do agree 
uh, that, you know, the social media aspect of the movement is a blessing and a curse at the same time. So it's a blessing because it gives normal, everyday people um, access to amplify stories and to, like, push the conversation and the national dialogue forward um, in ways that they probably couldn't because they can't access mainstream media. But on the same token, it does kind of give a platform to all kinds of folks. And some folks engage on a deep level and they're completely aware of some of the principles and guiding um, principles that, you know, inform the movement and other folks engage and they're kind of ignorant of those. And so a lot of times that, you know, people reach for the low-hanging fruit of folks that are kind of misinformed or ill-informed um, to speak on behalf of the movement. But there are um, organizations like Campaign Zero that is a 10-point policy uh, move to try to get some policing reform in America um, and many others like it. Well, if, if one didn't go to the if one didn't go to the website or or, or not actively involved in the meetings, mm. just just solely relied on social media or, or social media's reaction to Black Lives Matter. Let me say, you might not know that there were thirteen guiding principles. That's true. That's true. And so, uh, another thing, just to clarify, the thirteen guiding principles come from the Black Lives Matter organization, mm-hmm. uh, with its chapters across the nation. And so, there are plenty of folks that would consider themselves a part of the Black Lives Matter movement who may not necessarily fall under those guiding principles. But yes, um, oftentimes those principles of the actual organization get lost in the sauce, if you will, um, because social media is, you know, it's sound bites, it's clips, it's 145 characters. And, and sometimes it it's hard to have a nuanced conversation. Um, but again, there are folks that are really trying to push that through the social media platform uh, to inform and really kind of lay out some of these very well put together um, uh, goals and, and campaigns. That seems to be a rub, though. So how do you bridge that if if something happens in, say, Oakland, right. and there's a and Black Lives Matter rally around that, and something mm. happens in Tampa? Well, something did happen in Tampa, but something right. happens in Tampa, right. and they rally around that, but they're void. Let's say they may or may not. Let's just say for, for this conversation, they're mm-hmm. void of the guiding principles. How do those two connect so that if you have an aging baby boomer like myself mm-hmm. is looking at it, I'm like, oh, okay, I see what this is. Right. I don't see what that is. Right, right. I, you know, I think w- some of the efforts are to, like I said, form chapters in those areas. So um, before an incident, um, trying to organize the community and um, kind of rally them around these principles so that in the event of an incident or a tragedy, that's already in place. And then when there are tragedies, uh, many networks bring folks out to help organize. So um, things happen across the country and folks like Reverend Sekou are sent out or Michael McBride is sent out or um, some of the organizers, the founders of the Black Lives Matter organization come out and they do teach and they do training, kind of similar to what um, Leroy, uh, excuse me, Reverend Barber does. He, he always says agitation in the streets, education in the church, and then legislation in the courtroom. And I really think that many folks are trying to kind of continue that tradition that we found, you know, um, prevalent in the civil rights movement. I'm going to read you a quote, um, President um, Obama um, stated this recently in uh, London. It is assumed, he was referring to the Black Lives Matter movement, just to be more precise, quote, once you've highlighted an issue and brought it to the people's attention and shined a spotlight and elected officials or people who are in position to start bringing about change are ready to sit down with you, you can't just keep yelling at them. Mm -hmm. What would would you say to that? Yeah, so 
obviously you can find clips of Black Lives Matter protesters disrupting Bernie Sanders rallies, things of that nature. And so that is one tactic, um, yelling, being disruptive, um, which obviously it, it's, it's connected to a tradition of disruption. It may be a slightly different approach to disruption, but nevertheless, it's similar. Um, but I think what gets lost in Obama's comments recently in London is the fact that there are plenty of folks who are meeting uh, with local government officials uh, to do um, dialogues, to work for policy uh, change, and to reform the criminal justice system. Um, there have been folks that organized and met with President Obama himself um, and laid out policy strategies. They've gone to the UN. Um, they've A lot of the things that people critique the Black Lives Matter movement about are things that, that are actually being done, uh, but somehow it just doesn't, it's not a part of the narrative. And I think part of that is because um, this movement isn't really undergirded by the nonprofit industrial complex. So um, organizations like the NAACP and Urban League, yes, they're involved, they're doing work. Um, but a lot of these organizers are like 20-year-olds. They're, they're in their early 20s. Some of them are under uh, underprivileged. They're poor folks. So a lot of the access and resource to really kind of brand yourself and make sure that um, what is being spoken about you publicly is accurate is lacking. And so it's a grassroots movement with its flaws, and it's a baby movement. In many ways, it's only about two years old. So I, I see signs that it will continue to mature and develop, and some of those critiques will be kind of dismantled. Then that runs counter to uh, your last point, runs counter to um, some of the critiques I've heard, which I've heard the cynical critique that this is a seasonal movement, um, that once the presidential election is over, um, Black Lives Matter will go the way of v VHS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, my read is that um, that won't be the case. Um, in Ferguson specifically, the sustained protests uh, are only rivaled by the Montgomery bus boycott in terms of length. Um, and I think there are many folks poised um, and ready to be long-distance runners for justice. I, I really believe that. And so I, I don't think um, that the uh, presidential campaign, the end of that, um, will, will signal the end of Black Lives Matter movement. I think it will continue to grow um, and continue to engage in from various angles. Another uh, critique of Black Lives Matter is that the Black Lives Matter movement, we hear them when a white officer um, shoots a young black man mm -hmm. or black woman. But we don't hear them uh, on black-on-black -black crime. And, and let me just expand on that. Uh, last week, which one, two of the officers were black, mm -hmm. uh, were indicted and, and were convicted, pled, pled because they had actually killed people during Hurricane Katrina. Mm. And um, the Obama administration indicted them. They just pled um, uh, uh, guilty, and you don't you don't you don't hear anything about. It. I mean, I'm not saying that's yeah. true or not, but but yeah. that's sort of the critique. Absolutely. Um, so one, I think it's a. Uh it's disingenuous uh, when folks bring that to the table in a mm -hmm. conversation that's specifically about state violence. 
Um, a lot of times that's just the way to avoid uh, a deeper dialogue. Um, and then on, on the on the other end, um, being someone who is black, who works uh, doing youth development, gang intervention, uh, my friends across the nation, most of the ones that are um, involved in black in the Black Lives Matter movement are also on the ground doing stuff like character education and, um, you know, solutions to poverty. They're, they're addressing root causes to intra-community crime. So I even reject the term black on black crime in many ways. Um, it's a racialized term. So if you think about violence, most violence is interracial. You tend to kill and hurt people who you live in close proximity to. And because America is severely segregated here in 2016, black folks tend to kill black folks. So I think 85 percent of murders of black folks was were, are committed by a black person. Um, about 82 percent of murders of white folks are committed by a white person. But you never hear that type of critique on the white community. And so um, and the last thing I'll say is that. Um, MLK called this a torturous logic. When you condemn the symptoms of oppression, uh, when people live in what sociolo- sociologists call criminogenic conditions, poverty, uh, subpar housing, uh, underfunded schools, like those create a climate where if it's easier to get um, a gun and weed than it is to get a good education and a good meal, like it makes sense that some people, young people in our communities might um, dive into a life of crime. And so um, I, we want to get to the root causes. And I think many of us are walking and chewing gum at the same time. In the same breath that we're um, pushing against state violence, uh, we are also on the ground working um, to kind of uh, to dismantle or de-escalate the climate of um, peer-to-peer aggression within our communities. Well, one of the things... Um that just occurred to me in your last answer is that it also seems, maybe this is larger than Black Lives Matter, but it seems to me that it's only when cars are turned over in Ferguson or a CVS is burned that poverty even comes into the conversation. Exactly. And somehow, I mean, as long as poverty is a subtext, Mm -hmm. we're never going to make any progress. True. How do you see that? Yeah, I, you know, there's one theologian that says the poor show us who we are, the prophets show us who we could be, so we hide the poor and kill the prophets. And in many ways, we have socially engineered communities that are meant to be off the radar of the mainstream public. And these moments where a little boy grabs a bat and, you know, bashes out a, a police car window, that makes the loop on the headlines, and then we want to talk, talk about poverty. Uh, one of the sad things is that people on the ground, to kind of um, piggyback on my first point, were already in Baltimore. Um, there was a 300-men march against poverty, against intra-community violence. But no news media showed up to uh, uh, amplify that. They only showed up when there was, you know, violence or rioting. Um, and then, you know, one thing that was, that's been very frustrating is the fact that peaceful, peaceful protesters often get conflated with rioters or people that are looting. Um, so there's no nuance in the way we talk about it. Everything just gets kind of pushed into this one little pot, and it's all the same. But yes, to your, to your question, um, poverty um, has to be on the table and central to our conversation because nine times out of ten, the folks that are victims of the criminal injustice system are poor folks. And so uh, we've got to get to the root of those. And I, I do think there are folks that are really working on that. Well, you, well, you know, I, I guess the, the cynic would say, well, 
based on what you just said, Terrence Hawkins, I, you know, I, I don't hear that kind of nuance mm-hmm. coming from the Black Lives Matter movement. I, I just hear that it's it's a systematic killing of black men, yeah. and that that and that means that. Doctors and black doctors, black lawyers, black accountants are, are being gunned down just like, yeah. you know, young gangbangers. Yeah. And so I don't hear that kind of nuance. And mm-hmm. what's your response to that? Well, it depends on where you're fishing for information. Um, so if you're just looking at your friends on Facebook and Twitter, yeah, someone may just make that very uh, broad brush statement. Um, but when you get into like the leaders of the movement and hear what they're saying in the interviews and, and kind of listen to how they're viewing the situation, you hear that nuance. You hear the fact um, that um, the criminal justice system, uh, what some people call Jim Crow Jr., um, it, it functions primarily based off of race and poverty. So it's this this uh, mixture of both that creates the realities on the ground um, where you know, a young black man is far more likely to do jail time for uh, possession of drugs than his white counterpart for the exact same crime. And so when you uh, see someone dead on the street, um, unarmed, killed by a police officer, really what you're seeing there is the peak of the iceberg. Um, But if you follow that that mountain down, the slope down, you'll see all these other things. And I I think there are folks trying to highlight um, the root um, and the peak. Historically speaking, is, is there something, you know, I, I contend, I've always contended that for whatever reason, the peculiar history of, of, of black people in this country is that we have served as moral data points for the nation. Mm-hmm. So my question to you is, is there something about that reality that causes sort of systemic discomfort mm-hmm. in the American ethos whenever African Americans are, are engaged yeah. in a movement? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, <laughs> the country's dirty laundry is being aired um, by the folks who suffered the worst. So we're a, a nation that um, proclaims its exceptionalism. Um, and if any narrative is pushing against that claim of exceptionalism, it really, really causes some uh, cognitive dissonance. Folks don't know how to um, hold in tension the fact um, that a statement could make one of the you know greatest declarations of justice in the world. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and, you know, like, how do you hold that intention with the fact that the same nation uh, stole land and committed acts of genocide on Native Americans and then enslaved black people? How do, how do you hold those two things in tension? And normally, uh, the tendency is to kind of downplay that history of oppression, um, to kind of water it down, dilute it. And so when someone says, no, we're, go- we're not going to engage in, uh, as Cornel West says, deodorized discourse, and we just let it be funky— <laughs> People have a problem smelling that. They don't want to smell that. Um, But I think the Black Lives Matter movement and movements before it have put that stench right on the front street so that people could smell it and see what this country is. And I think all countries, nations, from a faith standpoint, are judged by the way they treat the least of these. Um, And when you look at uh, the hierarchy of race, um, which is a lie, but black folks are at the bottom of that totem pole. And as a result of being at the bottom, we are kind of like the canary in the coal mine. Um, Coal miners, they sent a canary in um, first because they're singing um, and, and they're more sensitive to the gases inside of a coal mine and so if that canary stops singing 
it's an indication to them that the gases down there are toxic and there's danger. And so we are the warning sign for America because we are the most vulnerable um, to all the problems in our American uh, society because we historically have been at the bottom of the totem pole. Reverend Terrence Hawkins, I, I want to thank you uh, for being on The Public Rally today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was Reverend Terrence Hawkins. Coming up, Bob Hall, Executive Director of Democracy North Carolina. Another issue that grew great attention in 2015 was the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But when the Supreme Court ruled in Shelby County versus Holder, many saw it as gutting Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, allowing a number of state legislatures, once under the jurisdiction of the act, to take swift action to make voting more difficult. In Winston-Salem, North Carolina, federal judge Thomas Schroeder recently upheld the North Carolina voting law. To discuss with me Judge Schroeder's ruling and the next steps is Bob Hall. Hall is Executive Director of Democracy North Carolina, a nonpartisan organization that collects data on money in politics and voter participation. Bob Hall, welcome to The Public Morality. Thank you for inviting me. Why don't we begin with you providing a recap of Judge Thomas Schroeder's recent decision in federal district court that upheld what many view as voter restrictions in North Carolina. Well, this is a federal judge ruling on our state law, the changes that have happened. Um, he heard arguments um, last July um, about a, n- a number of provisions, and then again later in the heard more arguments about the photo ID, uh, which has gotten a lot of attention. But there are many other parts of the law. It, he wrote then a 500, nearly a 500-page decision that came out you know, last week. Um, and it's a sweeping, uh, really an affirmation of what the Republican legislators did. Um, if you read it, you, you can see that he's very dismissive of the, um, the plaintiffs, the, the folks that are challenging the changes. He's very dismissive of their arguments. Um, he kind of cherry-picks some of their quotes to where a, a witness might say, well, it's, it's theoretically possible that this could happen. Well, that's the part he picks up. It's amazing. Um, but... It's a really it's um, uh, it's a strange decision. So he is upholding he's upholding a um, uh, the all the provisions related to the photo ID the, uh, the same day registration which we have had as a backup for folks who miss the 25 day cutoff to register and they go to early voting they can uh, register and vote they have to show identification they've always had to show identification to use that provision he's eliminated that he's eliminated the out of precinct. Uh, voting on election day, where you're you're in the right county, you're properly registered. You just show up at the wrong precinct, where like where you're going to, um, where you're picking up your kids at school, for example. Uh, he's eliminated that. He's eliminated the pre-registration of teenagers, and he's affirmed that that the early voting period can be shortened by a week. Uh, and then you know the language in there is um, there are several things that I thought were very telling. One is he he says, oh, yes, we've had discrimination in the past in North Carolina, but there's nothing in the last quarter century, no no official discrimination, he says, has occurred in the last quarter century of any consideration. (laughs) I mean, that's a pretty strange um, telling. It's a very instructive as to where he is sitting 
as a, a white man in a privileged community is, is essentially not recognizing that uh, official discrimination goes on even today. And then he, he also says that the burden on the Republicans to show any evidence of fraud uh, is not relevant. They do not have to show any evidence of voter fraud to bring in all of these changes. Now, that's a pretty important um, conclusion for a judge to make. So uh, we're pretty unhappy with it. Would it be fair to say that you're disappointed, but in some respects not surprised? I'm not surprised, yes, because of the way he started telegraphing decisions early on in the in the debate in, in his court as one side versus the other, and you can kind of get a sense of what the judge is, was, is um, viewing. So, yes, I'm not surprised. Um, you touched on, uh, when he was explaining his ruling, you touched on the, uh, the voter fraud piece. And I, I remember the last time we talked, you gave me some outstanding numbers of voter fraud in the last 10 years. Would you mind just sort of repeating that data about how much voter fraud <laughs> has occurred in North Carolina? That I think there, there have been like four cases um, of somebody trying to impersonate someone else or voting um, in the name of someone else over the last, tw- uh, well, let's see, it goes back to, ni- to 2000, so it, it's, well, I think it was 14 years at that point, from 2000 to 2014, um, there were four cases, and this is out of millions and millions of ballots cast in those years. Um, and when they looked at them, um, even then, I think there were a couple where it was a junior voting in the name of the senior, or they, and they uh, made a mistake in how they did it. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's infinitesimal compared to the impact. I can tell you that we've just done a study looking at what those safety provisions, that same-day registration and out-of-precinct uh, voting on Election Day, how helpful those are to voters. Um, and you contrast that with the number four. In just this one election, the primary of 2016, March of 2016, there were 22,800 people who showed up during early voting, and it turned out their names were not on the registration rolls, and they registered and they voted on that on during early voting. Now, that's because same-day registration was not repealed until this judge made his ruling. There was an injunction to keep it in place for the 2016, uh, at least this, as far as we've gone in the 2016 election. So that just shows you that in one election, you've got 22,000, more than 22,000 folks using this provision that he's now eliminated um, and just juxtapose that with, uh, you know, the number four. I mean, out of precinct was over 6,000 people that were able to vote using that provision. So if I understand you correctly, this could be eliminated in the general election? In the general election, right. <clears throat> in the November election, if, if Judge Schroeder has his way and the Republicans have their way, uh, those provisions will be eliminated. Uh, they will be in place for the June uh, primary that's coming up here relatively soon, um, but he has ordered that they uh, that the law move ahead with all of its uh, impact uh, for the general election. Here in North Carolina, we recently had the uh, uh, North Carolina primary in the presidential race. Mm-hmm. Now, you gave me a number of twenty two thousand same day, mm-hmm. six thousand out of precinct. Is that correct? Yeah, twenty-two thousand eight hundred. Yeah. Okay. And six six thousand three hundred. Right. So that's so that's roughly twenty-nine thousand people for a primary. Yes. 
Now, um, statistically, general elections usually draw more uh, statewide than a primary. Yes. Um, so if those measures are in place, we're, we're, we could be talking about maybe 40,000, 50,000 people disenfranchised? Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, I, can, I mean, I can tell you that in 2012, in our last presidential, 97,000 people used same-day registration. So you're right. I mean, there's a much bigger group of people come, and they're often more what we call more occasional voters. They're not as savvy about the whole election process. They're not. They don't participate in primaries. They just get excited about the general, and they go, and they don't necessarily know all the rules, uh, and so they think they can go and vote. And you know, it turns out they don't have the right paper, or they thought they registered at the DMV and the DMV paperwork didn't go through. Whatever the reason, you know, it's tens and tens of thousands. Now, it's difficult not to look back um, on the North Carolina legislation. What was it, HB 589? Was that the original legislation? Right. Uh, and, and that came out, I mean, very shortly after the Supreme Court gave its ruling in uh, Shelby County versus Holder. Exactly. So... And then, and I'm thinking about, um, you just said uh, how Justice Schroeder uh, sort of gave a sociological analysis that things are better. Uh, there was discrimination, but it's no longer. And then I'm thinking about uh, Justice Roberts' decision about the Voting Rights Act piece. And so I'm asking you to get me out of this mess by talking about uh, a little bit about Shelby County, uh, the Voter Registration Act, and how that sort of impacts all this stuff that we've got going on now. <laughs> it's the ball's in your court, Bob. See? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, unfortunately, the ball's in the judges' courts. As I tell you, they, they've got tremendous power. Um, what the Supreme Court Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, um, was saying, very similar to Judge Schroeder, is that, oh, yes, there was a time when we had racial discrimination and there were official acts by election departments and state governments and local governments to make it difficult for black voters to have their say. Um, but, oh, yes, that's all gone. Now, we, don't need, we don't need the protections that came about because of the Voting Rights Act. And so in the a decision in 2013, which Justice Roberts wrote, um, he basically says we don't need it anymore. He's, uh, we had a thing called, uh, there was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which said that uh, jurisdictions that have had a history of racial bias and, and discrimination, they needed, whenever they made a change to their election procedures, they needed to be pre-cleared, uh, approved by the Justice Department or by the circuit court in, in D.C., the district court in D.C., and um, so that was called the preclearance requirement, and uh, he said that is no longer needed for the jurisdictions that had been under that um, um, umbrella of protection. We're going to take away the requirement that they have that have to go through that process, and it's interesting that um, Judge Justice Ginsburg uh, in her dissent, she says, this is ridiculous. You're taking away the umbrella um, because it has been protecting us from the rain. <laughs> and you're acting like, oh, now there's no more rain. Well, there is rain, and we need the umbrella. So, I mean, that, and that's really the analogy I would say we're still at that. Justice Schroeder did the same thing. Meanwhile, you know, last week, President Obama, I mean, this is... He, Talk about official discrimination. We've got it right in the judiciary departments, right, among the judges. In the Eastern District of North Carolina, there's been an effort 
to have a African-American judge be the district judge, just like Schroeder is the district judge for his area, for the Middle District of North Carolina, one of many federal judges in that area. In eastern North Carolina, where, you know, it's 30% African-American, there's not been a, an African-American judge in that district, federal judge, ever, I don't believe. And you know, so for years there's been an effort to get a judge there, um, and it, it was Jesse Helms that blocked it, and, and then um, now, uh, what's his name, Burr. Senator Burr, uh, yes. Senator Burr is is blocking the uh, Obamas, has just again made another appointment. He had one African-American woman, very qualified, and for a time uh, Burr was saying, Richard Burr was saying he was okay, and then he stopped it. Uh, Obama pulled her back and put in another person, uh, incredibly qualified, Patricia Timmons Goodson, who's been on our state Supreme Court, um, and, you know, he, he put her name forward, and immediately uh, Richard Burr says, oh, no, I'm not going to approve her. Well, I mean, that's, he's using his power of the state, official power, to discriminate, um, and there you go. <laughs> and, and because uh, he can use that, he's got the power through a, a gerrymandered, I mean, in his case, he's running statewide, but the whole political culture is just so uh, anti, uh, working against the empowerment of black voters. Um, here we have the evidence of it. But they're saying, oh, well, you got a black man in the president in the White House, so it can't be discrimination. And, oh, look, in 2014 in, in North Carolina, we had more black voters than we had in 2010 in North Carolina. So we, we can't, there must not be discrimination. But that is, that's really uh, a warped and narrow view of, of how you evaluate um, the changes. Would it be fair to say it's not just skin color, but it's also uh, poverty plays a factor in this as well? Well, certainly, and that was in the the briefs to to these judges. I mean, to Schroeder uh, specifically about this case. Um, for example, the who possesses a photo ID and who doesn't. Uh, who needs same day registration and who doesn't. People that move around quite a bit. Who transient. They're renters. Uh, they're not property owners. Uh, they haven't lived in the same place, you know, for thirty years and are well-established, got all kinds of credit cards and everything else. No, they're moving around, and they, they're they the ones who can really benefit from same-day registration or out-of-precinct voting. And they, they're more, more likely not to have one of these official IDs. Well, you know, Bob, speaking of identification, uh, let's stay with that for a moment, because the person just maybe grabbing the sound bites of this story, not, you know, just hearing about it, not paying full attention, maybe reading something in the paper, what have you, uh, explain the issue with uh, voter identification, because it, it, I can see to the average voter, it sounds like you want people who don't have ID to vote, which raises the level of some kind of voter chicanery. So why don't you just walk us through about the voter identification issue, if you will? Uh, that's a good point for sure. And I, I think, you know, 98 percent of 99, even, yeah, folks have a, a driver's license or other uh, ID. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but there are a couple things. One is that the right to vote is not to be impacted or infringed upon by artificial barriers. Um, so whether a person has a currently has a photo ID shouldn't be the barrier to whether or not they can vote. If they're properly registered, and, and we use identifying uh, documents to get registered, 
people have to provide an ID number that has to be verified. Their address is verified through the mail of the registration card. If it bounces back, they're not authorized to vote until they provide some documentation. So there's documentation that happens at the registration level. The the problem with the ID, an additional problem, is that the backup system for people who don't have an ID doesn't work. And so it's it, they originally said, well, if you don't have one of these uh, IDs, you can go down to the DMV and get yourself one for free. Well, you know, going, <laughs> just going to the DMV is a onerous task to get it in line and all that. Uh, but then it turned out that people would be treated differently depending on which examiner they they spoke with, which office they went to. And there was discrimination in there as well. We, we had documents, affidavits um, from African-American and, and others, students, young people that got jacked around when they would try to get a free ID. So that provision wasn't working. And uh, they later changed it to say the Republican legislature in 20, last year, um, they changed it so that if you don't have an ID, you can fill out an affidavit and um, explain why you don't have an ID and vote with a provisional ballot. Well, that you know that makes people feel like a second-class citizen to have to use a provisional ballot and and doing an affidavit is you know essentially that's what we had before. Uh, we would go in to vote. We would have to give our name and our address, and we would sign an authorization statement. People did it so automatically they often didn't even realize it, but they were signing a statement that says I am who I am under penalty of uh, perjury. I I swear, and you sign that statement. Well, now they're the backup is you're signing this affidavit and saying you are who you are, and you check a box about why you don't have an ID, um, and there's pre-formatted answers in there, um, like work schedule or um, my family responsibilities, and but and there's another box. And so we've now had the experience of 2016 March primary where really over a 1,000 people went in who did not have an ID. Actually, over 2,000 people went in without an ID, and about half of them were approved and about half of them were rejected. And it turned out, to, again, it depends on where you were as to when you explained why you didn't have an ID. Some counties, they accepted it, and some counties, they didn't. Well, you know, this is just crazy. So you've, you've created this bureaucracy, lots of uh, all these lines, uh, poll workers have to be trained, and they're not doing it uh, properly. Um, and meanwhile, people's voices are being smashed. Their their First Amendment rights, uh, their voting rights, are being denied. And uh, you know, I, I that's they're bringing this all in. Um, people are confused. They're staying. You know, some folks are just staying away because they don't they don't know what's going to happen to them. Um, so we're just, we think it's easy to say, oh, it, you know, everybody needs an ID. you got to have that to cash a check. Well, <laughs> some people don't cash checks. Right. <laughs> so, well, and, and voting is not the same thing. It's, it, voting is your fundamental, your integrity as a citizen, your ability to be a part of a society. We want everybody voting. Uh, we shouldn't be creating these false barriers. Speaking with Bob Hall, Executive Director of Democracy North Carolina, you know, you just touched on something. It's probably easy, um, given this country's history, to, to look at it through the lens of race. We've talked about also the issues of poverty. But this, but this issue of voting 
is, is it goes right to who we are as a nation, does it not? Yes, it does. It really it it's, it is sort of like the the promise. There's an economic promise that comes with America. There's also this democratic, this uh, political promise that comes with America. That is, it, it's incredibly radical concept that every person's voice should be heard and every one of us is equal at the ballot box. My gosh, that's so dramatic um, a statement that it, it does, and it, it kind of undergirds the reality that we're supposed to all be equal, we're to be treated equal. We have an equal voice. Uh, in our political destiny, our self-determination. That's what America, that's the dream. I mean, so it's both conservative to uphold our voting rights. It's a tremendously conservative impulse that I'm acting on. It's also very radical at the same time. And that's the promise of America. We want this to be fulfilled. We want to see it living today and not being denied. Um, Though we tend to focus more on, on, on the national politics... You know, if these laws were to stay in place, talk to us about the impact they could potentially have on local municipalities, you know, city councils, school boards, you know, and other local officials for that, you know, those important decisions related to education, criminal justice, and what have you, they sort of really, where the rubber meets the road on our daily lives. Yeah, it's a, that's really important to recognize that those local elections are really the, the local officials often have a greater impact um, on your day-to-day life <laughs> and your family's life. Um, and often those dis- those elections can be decided by 10 votes, 15 votes, 3 votes. <laughs> We've had ties. I think in the last, in the 2015, you know, we often, the municipal elections are often in odd years. Um, and I think in Winston they moved them to the even years, but many most cities have them anyway. There were there were um, more than a dozen places that were determined by less than four votes, um, and so it's just really um, critical that we not um, gerrymander folks out of their uh, districts and, and manipulate this and that so that you can you can really poison the, the what the outcome is going to be. It's not a fair election anymore. Uh, and we want to um, have more citizens involved in those local elections. We we actually have a pretty, uh, I mean, we've grown through, really, through same-day registration, early voting. Our participation rates have I- increased, um, but they're still, even in the high presidential years, there's still 30, 40 percent of the registered voters are not even showing up, much less the people that are not registered. And then in these local elections, you have well over two-thirds of the voters not showing up and not participating. So that's, uh, President Obama has talked about how people need to not disenfranchise, don't disenfranchise yourself by not participating. Um, Get informed and and get out and cast your ballot. What's next for your efforts here at the Judge Schroeder's ruling? Well, it's going to be uh, appealed, um, and it will likely be appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, But first, there's the Court of Appeals. So the next step will be to appeal this to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers the North Carolina area. And uh, there will be claims made that his decision should be either put on hold until the full arguments are, are finally resolved, uh, because if they're not put on hold, real voters are going to be uh, affected. They're going to be disenfranchised because of the elimination 
for example, of same-day registration. That's going to penalize people because in the end, it, it may be shown that, that it is discriminatory and it should be stopped, the, the repeal of it should be stopped. Um, so while you're arguing, let's keep it in place. That will be one possible decision at the Fourth Circuit or the, you know, to bring, to bring the whole arguments to the Fourth Circuit and get them to overrule Schroeder. That's going to be the next effort um, is, the, is the appeal. And I think some of the evidence, um, I see the irony here, or I don't know whether it's irony or purposeful, but Judge Schroeder didn't wait to see what the impact of this was going to be on the, in the March primary. So he heard his hearing, he had his arguments in court before March. He wrote his decision uh, and released it last week, but it, there's no evidence of what happened in March itself, in the March primary. So all this uh, reality, as I say, there were 2,000 people that showed up without a proper ID, and about half of them were ultimately denied. Um, And that evidence and why um, wasn't in his record. So somehow the the new judges need to take a a cognizance of that. So that's, that's one thing at the federal level, appealing his decision. At the state, in the state courts, there's also a challenge, um, and that'll probably be heard later this summer. So it's running on a parallel track, uh, but there's arguments against eliminating, I mean, well, arguments to eliminate the ID requirement and all of the complexity involved in it, uh, that that, that's needless and violates our state constitution. So there's a couple things like that. Meanwhile, we want to educate voters about these new rules and get them prepared regardless of whether they're there or not. We, we need people to go ahead and register now and check their registration. We need them, if they wait till Election Day, to be sure they vote in their own precinct. Don't, don't use out of precinct if you can possibly not, and, and so on. So we'll be doing big uh, education efforts. And uh, before I let you go, for those who may want more information about what's going on in terms of these voter laws, give us your website. <clears throat> There's two. Uh, okay. One is the the kind of a all-purpose election information is ncvoter.org, ncvoter.org. Our own website is democracy-nc.org, democracy-nc.org. And there's a hotline, um, 888-R-VOTE, O-U-R-V-O-T, which is a helpline. Can you repeat, can you repeat that one? Repeat the that? Eight, eight, uh, right. Yeah, 888-R-VOTE. Which is um, it's eight 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 six eight seven eight six eight three. Okay, that's good. Bob Hall, I want to thank you uh, for being on the public rally today. Thank you, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for all you're doing. That was Bob Hall, executive director of Democracy North Carolina. Coming up, my closing remarks. And now for my closing remarks. What's underneath North Carolina's controversial law, HB2, commonly referred as the bathroom bill? 
Regardless, if you view it as a common sense legislation, as some do, or a law that prohibits local governments from passing anti-discrimination rules that protect gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender individuals, as others do, there is more than the mechanics of public policy driving this legislation. I suspect much of the discourse is dominated by assumptions that embody the worst stereotypes. The seductive nature of this approach is that it falsely endows the individual with a degree of certainty to the point that it invalidates any opposition. I'm always concerned with reactionary legislation because its tentacles invariably reach into the abyss of unintended consequences more rapidly than bills that grow through a more prudent process. Doesn't the national backlash from a wide variety bear this out? Though it is easy to respond to such opposition as the insidious work of the liberal agenda, it is not just liberals who find HB2 appalling. Companies such as Pfizer, Citibank, and Bank of America do not routinely dwell in the bastion of liberal orthodoxy, but are united in their opposition to HB2. Contrary to popular opinion, recognizing equality for the LGBT community is not, quote-unquote, a philosophically liberal issue. I know a number of individuals who identify as politically conservative, but vehemently oppose HB2. Why? It is due to the fact that their child, niece, nephew, or someone else close to them has come out. For many, HB2 is not a detached form of legislation based on a theoretical position. It is viewed as harmful to those whom individuals know and love. The human condition is ripe with examples of how the status quo conveniently truncates that which it does not understand so it can justify its position. I suspect underlining support for HB2, at least a portion of it, is fear. One of the hallmarks of identifying fear in the public discourse are the protestations of what it is against, more so than what it champions, offering simplistic shibboleths to support its position. Through the use of heightened decibel level and repetition, it falsely creates the persona of legitimacy. Once fear enters the lymph nodes of one's soul, data, no matter how persuasive to the contrary, becomes an unworthy adversary. Those who are not transgender or, for that matter, gay, a different race, a different gender, or physically challenged cannot effectively place themselves in shoes they never wore. Thus, we are always limited to the parameters of our perspective, which should invoke humility, but fear is undaunted by such realities. Instead of acknowledging what it does not comprehend, fear, supported by representing the status quo, develops a straw person by which it can clothe in fear's worst assumptions. Specifically regarding HB2, the most popular canard being transgender equates to pedophile. This is a powerful argument for those operating in fear. But if we allow sanity to briefly enter the discourse, does one really believe the city of Charlotte, which passed the original ordinance that necessitated the North Carolina legislature to draft HB2, would spend over a year to create a law that would benefit the rights of pedophiles? And moreover, there is not a scintilla of data that links pedophile behavior with being transgender. But fear is relentless. Before unleashing the erroneous transgender-slash-pedophile correlation, Fear ensures that the humanity of transgender brothers and sisters remains invisible. Systematically robbing one of his or her humanity is the first step in the humanization process. 
It would have been impossible to annihilate Native Americans, enslave Africans, or set up internment camps for Japanese Americans if one did not first deprive them of their humanity. Once complete, what would be normally considered counterintuitive, that being robbing one of their humanity while maintaining one's own, becomes normative because it is ensconced in a cocoon that is resistant to self-reflection. In lieu of self-reflection, fear inserts a socially acceptable certainty which allows individuals to inflict their discomfort onto others. But one would be hard-pressed to point to a time fear made the country better. When have the fear-induced assumptions toward those deemed as other, unworthy of mainstream status, been brought to fruition? All that was accomplished was to simply delay the inevitable. The only disinfectant for fear is courage and curiosity. Rather than supporting HB2 based on erroneous assumptions, why not reach a judicious decision through the less traveled path of courage and curiosity? The latter propositions open the door to enlightenment because it replaces certainty with humility. One wonders the fate of HB2 if the North Carolina legislature replace fear and certainty with courage and curiosity. For courage and curiosity are the proven tools that move us to that more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. And for those who would like to hear the archive broadcast, you can find those at our website, which is publicmorality.com. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Mm-hmm.